Radio Mano Papachango. history mankind faces a crossroads one path leads to despair and utter hopelessness the other to total extinction let us pray that we will have the wisdom to choose correctly that's a quote from woody allen you might have to listen to it again to get the joke it sounds so serious until you really wrap your head around it uh i i uh, opened the last chapter of the book with that Yes, we face a crossroads, ladies and gentlemen, and in one direction is despair and other ho- utter hopelessness, and the other is total extinction. Which way will we go? I think there's a third option. Uh, I'm not telling you what I'd put my money on, but I do think that there are three options. We are at a crossroads, and any crossroads has three options, right? Four, if you count going back exactly the way you came. But... Uh, you can go straight ahead, you can go left, you can go right. And so my argument in this last chapter is that one of those three options offers us a viable future worth living. The other two really don't. Um, and I get into detail on that in the, in the book. I don't want to ruin the surprise for you. Um, But I do say, here's another quote from the the beginning of the last chapter. This is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this one's not funny, so you don't have to listen for the joke. But it's from an essay uh, that he wrote called Circles. And uh, it begins with this. He says, the eye is the first circle. The horizon which it forms is the second. And throughout nature, this primary figure is repeated without end. Our life is an apprenticeship to the truth that around every circle, another can be drawn, that there is no end in nature, but every end is a beginning, that there is always another dawn risen on mid-noon and under every deep, a lower deep opens. It's this that gives me hope. Really, it's this way of thinking that is undeniable. We live in a linear society. We're taught to think in linear terms. Things have a beginning, a middle, and end. Every time we watch a program on TV, we're, it's pounded into our heads again. There's a beginning, a middle, and end. A beginning, middle, and end to every commercial. Beginning, a middle, and end to every grade, every class, every, every breakfast, every lunch, every dinner beginning, middle, end. And so we despair because we think of our lives in those terms as well, naturally, as we would living in this linear world that we've constructed. But if you look beyond this world, beyond this linear illusion, every religious tradition worth its salt is teaching us that no, the line is not the ultimate shape. The ultimate shape is the circle. 
that's what you see. When you look out into the universe, you don't see lines. You see circles. You see stars that are spheres, and they're spinning around other stars in circles, in ellipses. Sometimes the circles are stretched out a little bit, but they're still circles. Everywhere you look is a circle. A raindrop is part of a circle. And circles have no beginning and they have no end. It's all the same thing. If you're in midwinter, it's freezing cold. Well, the next day, even if it's colder than the last, is getting closer to summer. Also, it's getting further away from summer. Simultaneously, you're getting closer and further away from the same point. That can only happen with a circle. That's what I'm that's what I return to in these autumn days, these days of death where dead leaves are swirling around where people are dressing up like corpses. These days of the dead, I think about circles. I think about cycles. I think that yes, the raindrop ends when it lands in the ocean. But the water persists. The water goes on in waves, cycles, currents, evaporates, becomes a cloud. The cloud condenses and another raindrop is born. It's the same fucking water cycled over and over and over again. I remember reading somewhere not too long ago that water is never made. Water exists on the planet and the same amount of water has always existed on the planet. It came from outer space. Apparently, asteroids brought the water. And so maybe, you know, if an asteroid, an icy asteroid hits the planet, then there's a little more. But all the water on the planet gets recycled over and over and over again. It's not created. It's not destroyed. So we're drinking the piss of dinosaurs. All of us. We're drinking the blood of Alexander the Great, it just keeps going around and around and around. Maybe that's what Walt Whitman was talking about when he says, all goes onward and outward, nothing collapses, and to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. This week's guest is Roger Nigard. He's a very interesting cat. Uh, I met him as I've met several really interesting people. Um, Tal Ruspoli, for example, uh, last week's guest, uh, Neil Strauss. I met him because he wanted to interview me for a project he was doing um, about uh, marriage and love. And, you know, it's his recent, or not recent, it's his uh, current project about marriage and love. So he interviewed me for that uh, and we hit it off and I really liked his vibe and I told him about the podcast and he said, yeah, I'd love to be on your podcast. Turned out he's coming up to Portland uh, to attend a wedding <clears throat> of, um, oh, what are they? Uh, they're not goths. They're like, um, oh shit, he says, he talks about them in the episode, but um, they're they're having a wedding. They're like... Uh, are they goths or medieval reenactors or something like that? I, I don't remember exactly what their trip was. Anyway, he's going to their wedding, came to Portland, and uh, we we found some time to hang out in the park and talk about his fascinating life. 
he was born and grew up in the Midwest. I think it was Minnesota and uh, just decided he was going to go to L.A. and get a job in movies and TV. So he did like that. He tells you the details in the episode. It wasn't just like that, but that's what he wanted to do. He had a dream. Now he's living his dream. He's traveling all around the world, doing movies on what interests him. And then uh, he comes home and he uh, epi- he uh, edits some episodes of different TV shows and other people's work, movies, whatever. And then he heads off on the road again, just uh, making movies about whatever the hell he's interested in. You might have heard of some of his movies, um, Trekkies uh, and Trekkies 2, about the Star Trek uh, fanatics or fans funny how fan is okay and fanatic is negative but it's basically the same word right anyways the trekkie movies were both uh, his projects he also did a a really funny movie about um used car sales or just car salesmen not necessarily used uh called suckers i'm including i've got a clip of from suckers on the on my website if you're listening to this on iTunes and you want to check out some some of uh, some clips from his movies you can just go straight to YouTube and Google them or you can go to my website Chris Ryan PhD and uh, you'll see it there what else was I going to say oh he did another movie called six days in Roswell <clears throat> which is about the UFO people so obviously he's interested in fringe type uh, people and and ideas and I don't know whether marriage is going to be another one of those fringe ideas or exactly what his angle on that is, but I'm really looking forward to seeing that film when he gets done with it, which I think he said would be next summer it should be out. Another film that uh, he actually gave me a DVD when we met um, is called The Nature of Existence. Excellent, excellent movie, Um, documentary where he goes around and interviews people about their ideas concerning what is the nature of existence right pretty big question so roger's a fascinating guy very interesting mind very deep great sense of humor uh multinational kind of perspective on things he loves to travel he spends a lot of time in indonesia as you'll hear um so i trust you'll enjoy this conversation i certainly did and uh i think that's it That's enough ranting for one episode. I think I'm going to keep it real minimal this week. As always, many thanks to those of you who are are supporting the podcast, either through Fund What You Love. I think there are 143 people who have signed on with Fund What You Love. Really appreciate it. You can can, uh, pledge as much or as little as a dollar a month. Um, And it's cool because it uh, just shows that there are people who care enough to enter their credit card and uh, you know have it ding it for a dollar a month or five or ten or whatever you can afford. The other way people are supporting the podcast, as always, is through Amazon, which is great. Um, and more and more people are doing that Amazon thing. So it's really uh, gratifying to see that. And also thanks to all of you who have left reviews of the podcast on iTunes. That's so cool. Um, you know, if I get... Uh, dark and depressed i can just go and look at the comments on itunes and it makes me feel like i'm in a room full of uh friends so that's uh that's a really nice thing to have there uh that's about it enjoy the podcast and i will catch you next week i'm going to play you out with a song called blue sky by ryan brankin b-r-a-n-k-i-n 
He did a tune I used uh, a few episodes back called uh, Zirconium Fire. Interesting, beautiful voice, strange, unusual voice. I like it a lot. And uh, Ryan, I I sent him an email. Uh, If there's a link to his stuff, it'll be up on my site. At the moment, um, there doesn't seem to be. I Googled him, and what I found was a very bizarre YouTube clip of him uh, on a three-minute late-night talk show, episode four, Ryan Branken. I'll put the clip on my website. Um, If you miss it there, you can just Google him. It's hilarious and bizarre. (laughs) It is really fucking strange. So my impression is that Ryan has a very quirky sense of humor and doesn't really seem to be concerned with selling his music or, uh, you know, have a website or any sort of professional operation going. Um, but as you'll hear, his music's beautiful and profound and well worth checking out. Catch you next week. Flew across the blue sky there, payloads locked and ready. Push from someone's finger, let rain down quick and steady. Fire's on the ground, but the smoke snakes way up high. People left there standing, they hang their heads and cry. Smoke chokes are light. Madness on the street I know birds are singing Flowers don't smell sweet Clouds of snow and ash On a warm day in July People left the standing They hang their heads and cry When will they learn? We've been through this before The sickness to the sea, the blanketed the ground. Dark days have passed, clouds open wide. Sun returns to warm the day, mirrors reflect the sky. What is this we've come to? Cannot even speak. Tongues are tied in ribbons. Fear house through the trees And all the tired lives Affected by the wall Dig a hole and throw it down Remember it no more When will I learn I've been through this before Turn the hate on
it's it's purely uh, conversational. We talk about whatever you want. I'm not afraid of any topic. Oh wow, them's fighting words right there. <laughs> fair is fair. I do it to everybody else. challenging and controversial the more interesting it is to me well you know i try never to have um a guest on that i don't respect and like you know like some people have said oh you should have so and so and um yeah i'm just i'm not interested in having anything contentious or you know it's not journalism i'm not pretending it is it's just someone i find interesting that you know i i think the audience will find interesting and generally, it's people who are, and this isn't really intentional, this is just the nature of the people I'm attracted to, I guess, but generally it's someone who's found <clears throat> some sort of unconventional way of living their lives that makes them happy, because I think a lot of the audience are, are young people who are sort of looking at life and saying, well, I don't like the options I, I see here, you know, and so they're thinking about new ways yeah. to have relationships and work and travel and, you know. I've had those, those thoughts. There's a guy playing a guitar there, which isn't really loud. No, that's fine. I, I don't mind. It's a nice background. Right? Yeah, I like, I like hearing some human stuff. And I, you know, I tell people we're in the park and everything. Do you edit this or do you play it as is? I generally play it as is. All right, so no restarts. I'll just keep we, going. No but we can restart. If, if, if you say something that you're uncomfortable with or... It's more like if I cough or... Nah, doesn't matter. Um, I can edit it, and I, I okay. have occasionally, but generally it's just uh, free-flowing conversation. But like I say, if you use a name that you think, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that, or you, you know, some industry secret, just tell me. I'll make a note and cut okay. it. Okay. All right, we are rolling. I'm in uh, Laurelhurst Park with uh, Roger, no, is it, how do you say your last Nygaard. name? Nygaard. Nygaard, okay. Although if you're in Norway, it would be Nygaard, or not, so Nygaard will do. <laughs> <laughs> it's dangerously close to to uh, other N-words that we can't say. Well, it means, uh, and you didn't ask, but I'll tell you, it means new farm. So a lot of Norwegians, uh. when they came here, they changed their name. to. So my great-grandfather was actually an Olsen. And when he got here, he became, or new land, actually. Uh. So it was like, new land, I'm, my last name is now new land. New land, that's that's nice. Metaphorical. That's very American. Right. Did Did your ancestors go to Minnesota? Yeah, which was just as cold and inhospitable as where they were used to, I guess. I guess, yeah. I would have gone to the Bahamas personally. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know, you can go somewhere nicer. Yeah, yeah. I, that didn't seem to occur to people back yeah. then, did it? They just try to, like, because they knew how to grow shit that grows in that environment, I guess, and that was it, yeah. And a lot of people had preceded them, so there were people there just like them who could help them out. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. You've got your community there. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, my my people were also potato farmers. I don't know if yours were potato farmers. Did, what do they grow in Norway or what did you say it was? Sweden, Nor Norway. Norway. Yeah. You know, they eat a lot of fish, and uh, you know the growing season is very short up there, so it's mm. going to be those. Th they're not, not a lot of watermelons. But they weren't fishermen in Minnesota, right? Uh, a lot of lakes. Land of ten thousand ah, lakes. Oh yeah. I go ah, back there. I go fishing every year whenever that's possible. True. And mosquitoes. Yes. Lots of mosquitoes. Get used to that. Yeah. It's worse in the spring. It tapers off as time goes on. Mm. Well, listen, the reason Roger's here is, uh, well, there are, two, there are completely different uh, agendas here. Roger is in Portland to uh, interview people at a polyamorous wedding. 
Right, taking place at a fairy festival. At a fairy festival. Where people wear wings and fawn <laughs> horns and all sorts of, uh, of fairy costumes. Uh-huh, and this is for a documentary called... The Truth About Marriage. The Truth About Marriage. Wow, that's, uh, you're asking for trouble there, man. Yeah, that's, I love it, love trouble. Truth, I'm, I, I, truth is not easy. Truth is hard. Yeah. People don't really generally like truth. But once they have it, they're so much happier in the long run. Have you ever heard of Brad Blanton? No. He's, uh, he wrote a book, I think in the 80s, um, called uh, Radical Honesty. And his the- he's a psychologist. His thesis is that all our problems come down to lying to ourselves and one another. Almost every episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm was based on Larry telling a lie to somebody and covering up for it for the next 30 minutes. <laughs> or, or telling a truth <laughs> right. that w- he would have been better off lying. <laughs> yeah. And one of my favorite episodes is the one about uh, uh, cunnilingus. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, the whole episode is him, you know, basically talking about, how he, yeah, I, yeah, I get a, I don't, I get a crick in my neck, and you get the hair in your mouth. And you're, <laughs> so you, you've directed uh, uh, Curb Your Thursday. I edited Curb. You edited. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, many episodes? Uh, or? Three seasons. The, the most recent three seasons. What does that mean to edit a TV show? That you're... Depends. They're all different. You know, the dramas, most shows, I call them circle take shows because they're directed and they're scripted. And then so the the director picks his favorite takes and the script supervisor circles them. And those are the ones you tend to use in the edits. And you just follow the script and build a a scene according to the way it's been pre-planned. But a show like Curb Your Enthusiasm is improv. The dialogue is improv. But they have, Larry's worked out the storylines in advance. You don't improv storyline. But the scenes meander and they try different things and they look for different outs and different ways in. And so editing a show like that is like putting the pieces of a puzzle together and it can go into almost an infinite number of combinations to find, you're just trying to find the funniest version of what they shot. And is someone looking over your shoulder or do you have a lot of leeway to decide what you think is the funniest version? Well, both in reverse order. First, I have a lot of leeway. I build the scene I like. I build the show I like the best. And then Larry Davids comes in after he's done shooting, and we sit down and we watch all the footage together. It takes about a week. And then he might point something out. Oh, let's try that. I like that. And so I'll then jam all these other things into a cut that he pointed out and liked in addition to what I put there, and the cut gets bigger and bigger. Then it's a process of winnowing it down, cutting it to time. It has to be under 30 minutes. And so you might notice most Curb Your Enthusiasm episodes, or many of them, I don't know if most, but are about 29 minutes and 58 seconds long because <laughs> you're getting every last thing in there. every possible joke yeah that we can, can get in i'm just gonna try changing this <clears throat> mic I'm, I'm your mic sounds great mine sounds muddled hello hello that's better yeah that's better um how, how do you become a, a tv editor well for me it was by accident i just started making films when i was seven when i found my dad's eight millimeter camera and there was film in it you know, the old 8mm film rolls, you had to shoot half and then turn it over in the dark and then shoot the other half. You mail it off, and when they develop it, they split it down the middle to make 16mm into an 8mm strip. And then they splice the two to, uh, together in the middle, and you watch the whole movie. So I went and I filmed some stuff, 
without telling my dad, and he sent the thing off to be developed, and it came back, and the first half was family family films, and the second half was all this crazy stuff I shot. It's like, who wasted this film? <laughs> What's How old were you? Seven. Seven. So what were you shooting? Like, insects or something? Uh, my fr- the first film I ever shot, and I found it in a uh, in an old shoebox a few years oh, ago. Oh, really? Yeah, and, and transferred it to video just for fun. But it was what you'd call stop motion or pixelation, where you just press and release the, but- the button, the shutter button, very quickly, and only a couple of frames go by. I was trying to emulate Gumby films that I had watched. Oh right, as a kid. The, those those sort of Play-Doh things. Yeah, right. They're animated stop motion pixelation. Right. So I had a Linus and and a Charlie Brown doll, and I put them through some adventures, tightrope walking across the back of the couch. That's the first thing you did. Yeah. So you were already experimenting with the form, uh, you know, with the technology. Yeah, yeah. I was goofing off, messing around because I oh. lived in Minnesota in the middle of nowhere and there's nothing to do except what you kind of figure out mm. yourself. Mm. <laughs> you can't go into town and get into trouble because there's no town nearby. Right. Aren't the Cohen brothers from up there? Yes. Also I, I think I remember them saying something similar, like there was nothing to do, so we right. made films. You go fishing... You blow things up. You take shotgun shells apart and blow things up, which I don't do not recommend. I did that with my neighbor once yeah. when we were probably 11, and he ended up blowing the tips of his th- three fingers off right in front of me. And so, not advised yeah. to mess with shotgun shells. <laughs> camera work, camera making films was a lot safer, and yeah. ultimately led to a better career path. So your dad, uh, he didn't like beat you senseless for using his camera. No, he, I think he was probably amused. At first he was shocked and pissed and like, it's wasting money kind of thing. It was more, you know, my parents grew up, or their, my parents' parents lived through the Depression and instilled in them yeah. the, the idea that get ready for when the Depression comes back. And yeah. so we didn't, we weren't allowed to waste anything, yeah. including half of the 8 millimeter film in my dad's camera. Which is tough because learning to make films requires what looks like a lot of waste. Vast expenses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm still doing it. I and mean, these days with, with uh, digital, I guess that's all changed. But, you know, back when people were using film, there's no way to avoid it. It's changed, but not much has changed. Some things have changed. It's still just about as expensive because with video, you end up shooting a lot more. You don't have to force yourself to be disciplined. When shooting actual film, you have to be really prepared and yeah. you rehearse everything and you shoot it and it's one take done got it or if it just didn't work do a second take yeah. now you the tape rolls endlessly and you spend all so much more time editing right it's a different process yeah yeah i used to shoot uh i, I was sort of a semi professional photographer for a while back in my traveling days like in the national geographic kind of vibe you know shooting um kodachrome 35 millimeter yeah, and it, I mean, it, it was very. You have a very different experience, uh, relationship with shooting. You also have a different relationship, at least I did, with the technology. Like you learn how to use a camera in a completely different way, because now you can do so much post production that people are just shooting. I'll take it out later. I'll soften that. I'll, you know, I guess you can't change the depth of field, but uh, pretty no, you, much everything else. You better get it in focus the first time. You can't fix that. Yeah. This TV show I'm editing now called The League, every episode of this sitcom, a light sitcom, has maybe 30 or 40, sometimes more, special effects shots in it. 
where we're removing an arm or changing a, a, a framing or stabilizing a shot or there's a boom in the shot. Uh, there's so much that we're doing now that you, you, you couldn't have done before. You had to get it right while you're filming. Yeah, yeah. What's the league about? It's about a bunch of guys in a fantasy football league and the crazy hijinks they get into torturing each other. Hijinks. <laughs> hijinks is one of those words. Great word. Uh, quirky. I was watching your <laughs> film uh, two nights ago. Cassie and I watched the, what's it called? The, the Nature, Nature of, of Existence. Existence. Yeah. And, uh, and All the mysteries of the universe explained, guaranteed. And exactly, in what, 90 minutes yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, was, uh, that was very interesting. I enjoyed that a lot. The, uh, it's available on where Amazon. Amazon has it on sale right now, and uh, you can watch it on Hulu if you want to. Uh, just good. Click right now. Right now? Well, not right now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> after this you, is over. After this is over, yeah. Or you can, you know, pause and come back. Uh, it's called The Nature of Existence, and you basically set out to answer the deepest, most profound questions, or question, I guess there is. Fantastic interviews. I mean, the the Christian wrestlers and the aha, uh-huh, the the dude in LA. Aha, uh-huh, yeah. Aha. Uh-huh, I mean, he started out. He's this huge guru, self-proclaimed guru guy. And you know, when I first saw him and his his sparse beard and the whole thing. And he, he, was, he had a staff, I think. <laughs> with, you know, with some kind of emerald or, I don't know, stone yeah. set in the top of it for power. But he actually, he actually made some sense. Uh, you know, the, he was very confrontational with people about their, their quest for enlightenment. And, yeah. and I found myself sort of, you know, respecting him begrudgingly. At first you're put off by his looks. Yeah. And then you listen to what he says. A woman comes to him and, and asks... I can't find my purpose in life. That's what, exactly the one I was thinking of. And he's like, you're just, you know, you're a narcissist, essentially. You're looking for approval. Yeah. Your purpose is that person right next to you, right exactly. there, right now. Yeah. Or that person over there, the people in your life. That's your purpose. Stop looking for approval. Yeah, yeah. He just yells at her. Yeah, which is, a, a, you know, such an interesting thing for a guru to be doing. You know, I, I've, I've talked on this podcast how... Um, I get emails from people asking for advice, and the more I say I'm not qualified to give advice, the more appeals I get for advice. So, I don't know. Maybe I should just start, you know, charging. Just give in. You just give in. <laughs> yeah, I'm a psychologist after all, right? Um, You've got as much uh, reason or ability to give advice as anybody, and which is basically none. Right, yeah. So why not? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of aha, by the way, he uh, he as he put it, he dropped his body last Sunday. He just passed away. Oh no, really? He was very ill, and uh, he's now—he's no longer with us. And, and uh, I think he's like the third person in the film who's who's now gone. Because mm. uh, I interviewed 170 people, so odds are, you know, somebody's yeah. gonna go. But he just died recently. Well, and and a lot of those people were in China and India, and you wouldn't even know about them. You're right. Yeah, that was uh, has, was that the first time you'd been to China and India? Yes, I went there specifically to interview people. I mean, I set out to ask, why do we exist? And I figured I'd better go talk to representatives of all the major belief systems and get a perspective from an expert. So I went to India to find a, a Jainist and a Buddhist, uh, Baba lovers, and um, uh, a Sikh, etc. Uh, I found a Muslim, some Muslims there, actually, because there's more Muslims there than anywhere except Indonesia. China, same thing. I needed to find some Confucianists and Taoists. 
And that was what I built my trip around, finding those experts. And it's funny how it gave my trip so much more purpose and meaning to go, to have a goal. I'm not just a tourist, to go, oh, look at that beautiful landmark. It was to go and find people and connect with them. And it made the trip, for me, so enjoyable to find people that I've never met and then sit down and have a conversation, much like we're doing right now, and ask them what they think. And they are so thankful that someone's asking them what they think. And they're glad to tell you. They'd love to tell you what they think. And, and you bond on a level that you, with someone when you do that that you don't in everyday interactions. So I would, go, I would go and make friends in all these countries, and they're still friends to this day, I consider them. I still get emails from a lot of them, and I've helped you know, some with letters. Hey, okay, could you write me a letter for, you know, recommend me for whatever? Mm. You know, they're trying to get a, a visa to come here, yeah. mm. or what have you. So I recommend go places, meet people, and then ask them what they think. Yeah. And then actually listen. And if you happen to have a microphone, it's even better. Then you got, it's all tax deductible because it's for your project. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. But also, you know, I, I often say one of the reasons I do like doing this podcast is that it gives me a chance, sort of gives me a, an excuse to sit down, you know, like you, for example, right? I met you once uh, uh, doing an interview for your documentary. Now, if I happen to say, you know, oh, you're going to Portland, let's hang out, you know, but you're busy, you got stuff to do, you're on your way to a wedding, you've got stuff, but, you know, the fact that I've got the podcast gives us a chance to hang out, and it almost, like, the, the fact that it's a podcast is almost incidental, and, you know, as, just as you're saying, I've become friends with a lot of people, it gives you a chance to, to take a conversation to a, a more profound space than normal conversation tends to go to, you know, unless you're stoned sitting by a campfire somewhere. <laughs> well, think about what is life all about. It's really a series of conversations that you have from the beginning to the end. Some of those are really interesting, and those are the memorable ones, and they give your life a lot more meaning in that moment. Then you've got a bunch that are very not memorable or unpleasant or forgettable. I try to increase the number of interesting conversations as much as possible. They tell you when you're dating, you shouldn't bring up politics or religion. But I love talking about these things. Mm. And, and it's, it's kind of a mistake if you want to get laid to bring those things up. <laughs> but sometimes yeah. I can't help myself. It's just too interesting. Yeah. I'd rather have an interesting moment yeah. in any given moment. Well, one of the, you know, I think one of the consolations of getting older is that you realize that there are actually a lot of things more important than getting laid, you know, including good conversation. And yeah, if, a, if conversation is going to interfere with getting laid, then the hell with it, you know? You make a, yeah, you have priorities and you, you choose in the moment. You know what? You're right. I'm going to remember this conversation more. I remember I was going out with this girl, this beautiful uh, woman, and I would love to have gotten in, into her pants. But she said while we're at dinner that she had watched this show on Fox that proved that we never went to the moon. <laughs> there are two strikes right there. Fox and the moon conspiracy. Now, yeah. if I wanted to get laid, I would have said, you are so right. Yeah. It's crazy. You're so smart to think that. Uh -huh. But I, that bait was just too tempting. Yeah. I, couldn't, I couldn't let that go. Yeah. It's like you think the hundreds of thousands of people connected to NASA and all those Apollo missions are all lying and covering it up? That's more likely... The, that's the likeliest scenario to you? Yeah. People can't keep secrets? No, we went there. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, they can keep secrets for, you know, a limited number of people for a limited amount of time. And even but, they have trouble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. So what do you think about the, the whole 9-11 thing? Are you, uh, where do you come down on that? I mean, we've already established we're not going to have sex with each other. We might as well just... Yeah, let's get it on the table. Yeah. Um, I need... I'm, a, I'm an evidence-based guy, as I think you are, obviously. You know, you you're tend to... You read a lot of scientific books and articles. And, um, and I'm also a, a, an aficionado of... Uh, Occam's razor, mm. the most likely answer is probably the actual answer. Yeah. So the mi- most likely answer is that there were some crazy people who hijacked an airplane. That's the most likely answer. Is, am I, do I believe it's the only answer? No, I don't know. I mean, I, so my, it's a long-winded way of saying I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very hard to know. I, I, I'm somewhere in the middle, you know, on the dial between conspiracy, you know, so-called cons- conspiracy theorist and and, you know, whatever the opposite of that is. Um, because I do see conspiracies. I mean, 9-11 was a conspiracy. It's just a question of who was behind the conspiracy, right? Was it... Or how deep does it go? I mean, right. that's a better question. Yeah. How deep do you think the conspiracies went to 9-11? Exactly. So there, we're surrounded by conspiracies, but it's a... So I resent the, the sort of dismissal of, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Well, you know, come on, let's... Gulf of Tonkin was a fucking conspiracy, yeah. right? And maybe Pearl Harbor was a conspiracy. There are lots of false flag operations and, you know, and... Well, George, Book is, George Bush is on record for saying, find a way to get me back into Iraq before 9-11 happened. Right, right. So that's certainly a factor in his mindset. Yeah, and the, what was it, the, the, the new American century? I mean, those guys, they, they wrote that stuff out, publicly published it, you know, we need to go in and have a war in the Middle East to establish dominance over the oil fields, yada, yada, yada. And then it happens. Now, you say, well, that's just a coincidence. Eh, I don't know. And then Dick Cheney, I think that guy's capable of anything. Yeah. I mean, him shooting his friend in the face, we never really found out what the fuck that was all about. Yeah. You don't accidentally shoot your friend in the face when you're out pheasant hunting. I mean, well, he was pretty drunk, I think, too, and that's part of it. Yeah. You <laughs> yeah. do a lot of stupid things well, when you're drunk. And Bush, like, uh, f- choked on a pretzel and fell off the sofa and smashed his face? What the fuck happened there? Yeah. There's no way that that's what happened, you know? Or that guy, what about the, remember the gay escort who had the White House pass and he was going to all those press conferences? Gannon, Jim Gannon? Yeah, Jim right, Gannon. James Gannon. And that just disappeared. Yeah. Like, what are you, there's no, the, the cover story is absolutely untenable. So, yeah. Well, if I you want to ask me, here's something I have a strong opinion on. Ask me if I think there's aliens. Okay. Because that was one <laughs> of the early conspiracies uh-huh. of our government was behind. Uh-huh. And I've, got, I've, I've researched that thoroughly because uh-huh. I made a film about it. I made a film called Six Days in Roswell about UFO fanatics. Oh, okay. So I haven't made a film about 9-11 yet, but... In 1947, we were, the, the, the government, the U.S. government was obviously testing a lot of different weapons, including a nuclear weapon. And they didn't want the Russians and anyone else to know what was going on. Primarily, we were afraid of the Russians at that point, getting the technology as well as the Germans and Japanese. So when one of their balloons, uh, weather balloons crashed and somebody said oh I saw an alien ship because people say I see on a UFOs they see UFOs all the time but that's just unidentified doesn't mean it's from another planet right. 
the government or the people in charge thought, oh, there's a good cover story, just let that go, because they're afraid of the Russians. Not thinking or realizing that 50 years later and beyond, it would blossom into what it's become now, essentially a, an alien industry. <laughs> but there's no aliens coming here. Yeah. If you, I mean, it's possible, right? Anything's possible. You can't really eliminate um, anything. You can just re reduce the probabilities. And there's too many things, too many reasons against the possibility of aliens coming here. One is that people wouldn't be able to cover it up very well, that we just talked about that. The second thing is the needle in the haystack problem. There's a billion suns in our galaxy alone, and there's a billion galaxies. To, there, there's as many suns as there are grains of sand in the entire world, including all the beaches in the Sahara. How long would it take you to check every one of those grains of sand to find those two or three or five places that had intelligent life? It couldn't be done. It would take forever. You'd have to get so lucky. That's the first problem. The second is the distance. Traveling across these vast distances, there's still no reason to believe we can go faster than the speed of light. Einstein just first proved that, and it's never been disproved. So nobody, no intelligent species is traveling faster than light, meaning that at best they'd have to have a multi-generational ship to get here, and they'd have to know where to go. And a multi-generational ship has its own problems because these generations are probably going to end up attacking each other or losing their focus or have problems. And so there's another uh, strike against it. Well, and, and the assumption that there's something here worth traveling. Why know. go so far and expend such vast resources to go there? Yeah. It's, and the Fermi paradox, you know. Why, where are they? Yeah. Why right. haven't we heard from them? Well, and my, my feeling about that is that uh, any society that lasts loses its interest for interstellar travel and just settles down and takes care of shit at home. Or destroys themselves. You know, I, I think it's probably... Well, those are the ones who don't last. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. It's, it's, it's probably safe to say that intelligence anti-correlates with species longevity. I mean, look at cockroaches and alligators. They've been around a lot longer than we have and probably longer than we ever will be. We have the ability to destroy ourselves, and so it's possible and maybe even likely that we will. Yeah. I mean, we're already doing it by over-consuming and overrunning our environment. We're swarming locusts, man. Don't get me started. Right. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> See, my, my theory about aliens, and actually this is what I've been writing about uh, the last few weeks, is, uh, and maybe I, I probably, well, people who listen to this podcast already know all my s secrets anyway, but uh, my theory is that we're, we're missing the point by, by being worried about artificial intelligence taking over robots or your extraterrestrials or whatever. We have already been colonized and enslaved by a higher intelligence. And I, I use the word higher only in a dimensional sense, not that it's a deeper intelligence. It's higher, not deeper. Um, and the higher intelligence is an emergent property of... Uh, human beings. So, like, if you get enough water and you pull a plug, a whirlpool forms, you get enough grasshoppers, they become locusts and they swarm, get enough people and they become institutions. And institutions have a function on a different dimension than individual human beings and their agendas often run counter to the interests of human beings. So you end up with these institutions 
you know, pumping oil out of uh, the Gulf of Mexico, right, which is clearly against the interests of individual human beings, even the individual human beings who happen to work for BP or Shell or whatever. Um, and so to me, that explains the conundrum of our species doing all these self-destructive things. It's that it's not really our species. It's another dimensional emergent property of our species, right? Just like a swarm of locusts is against the interests of the grasshoppers, you know, that, that eventually become emerged in, or emerged into that swarm. Um, yeah, pick up a copy of Civilized to Death <laughs> around, about a year from now to hear my thoughts on this in more detail. Uh, so I, I think we, we've already been colonized by an alien intelligence. Well, you don't, even, you don't need to go beyond uh, the Earth to, to, for that theory to, to play out. And Fermi's paradox just asked the question, if there are aliens, why haven't they come already? They've had 13.7 or however many billion years to figure it out. And SETI's been listening, and there are no signals coming here. And we've been sending out signals for, what, 50, 60 years yeah. now? So yeah. they've gone 60 light years. It's not that far. Not, it's not that many suns within that sphere. Yeah. It'd take a long time to travel far enough to make any difference, and we'll be long gone probably. And they should be long gone by the time their signals reached us anyway. Yeah, yeah. So all those things combined just reduces the probability to infinitesimally low levels that aliens are coming here. Yeah. Well, why would they? You know, if you read Guns, Germs, and Steel, Jared Diamond pointed out how every time that two civilizations first interacted, the less developed one was destroyed or, or trampled on or uh, came out the loser. And that would be us. We, gotta, we, we should hope they don't come here. Yeah, although that presumes several things that I think are questionable. One is that military superiority is an indicator of higher development. See, I'm, I'm arguing the opposite of that. I'm arguing that the most advanced societies are those which are not expansive because they've figured out a way to not have to engage in that sort of destructive and often self-destructive high-risk behavior, right? By that definition, then they wouldn't come here anyway. Right. That's what I said earlier. Yeah. The, my answer to the Fermi paradox is that societies that have lasted and survived are precisely those which are not interested in exploring the universe. They're, they're meditating and self-reflecting. They're chilling. I mean, hunter-gatherers lasted for hundreds of thousands of years, right? They, they had a very high quality of life. They were very happy. They had a good relationship with the, the environment. That's why they lasted, right? We're the ones who are, are fucking it up, you know? Although we are more developed. So there's this weird sort of conundrum there. What, what other, before I forget, what other films? You said you made six, seven films? So you've got Aliens? Yeah, it's a uh, weird collection of projects. You've got, like, My first existentialism? film was a comedy called High Strung, which is about one guy sitting in a room complaining about everything until <laughs> death comes for him to take him away, and even death won't take him once he hears how uh, you know how horrible it would be to listen to this guy complain for all eternity. Oh my God! Written by a guy named Steve Odekirk. Oh, who's a comedian writer who wrote Patch Adams and oh, Ace Ventura no. Two and I, I'm, Odekirk. Uh, There's a Bob Odekirk. Bob, Bob. Okay, or, or, right. And slightly different spelling. And then my second film was an action picture called. American Yakuza 2, back-to-back, back, straight on, 
Yakuza versus Mafia action picture made for foreign sales. For so, did you company. go to film school or something? How did this no, happen? No, I planned to. Moved out to California and applied and got rejected by a couple, but got into USC. And by the time the, it came for the semester to begin, I had already gotten a job working as a production assistant. So I just kept working. Kept I just didn't go to film school. I figured I'd take the money. It was going to cost a fortune to go to film school. I thought, yeah. I'll, I'll save that money and make my own short film. Because even in film school, there's no guarantee you get to direct the film or you even get to make one. Mm. But there's sort of a lottery process, or you have to earn the the right to direct by writing essays, and that they pick it. So you may not get to do it. Did you go to college? University of Minnesota, undergraduate degree in speech communications, which is the closest thing they had to right. filmmaking or media. And then straight from there to LA. Packed up my brown little brown Celica and drove it over the mountains. Barely made it. Four <laughs> cylinders. I, What's wrong with my car? It doesn't work anymore. And it's, oh, the air's so thin up there. It doesn't, uh, doesn't go very and it's, fast. And it's full of all your stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that was a little bit hair-raising. And didn't know anybody. Just came out here and got a job. Wow. That's pretty ballsy. So well, what, It wasn't it, like I had a choice. What, what year are we talking about? It was just, that was what I was always going planning to do. Yeah. Uh, 1985. So you just knew that's this is your path from yeah. from when so you were seven or why eight. Why shouldn't it be? That's what I want. That's what I like. That's what I wanted. Why shouldn't I do that? Mm. I mean, part of the reason is I got programmed, I guess, at an early age by my mother. I had a, the kind of mother who was very supportive. I would come home with my drawing, my coloring from kindergarten, and no matter what it was, she would go, "This is amazing. <laughs> you are so talented. You are." Overly creative. That was a phrase. That overly. She, you're overly creative. You're you're beyond creative. Well, that sounds negative. Overly yeah, creative. Oh, I'm so, like beyond. It's like stratosphere of creativity. <laughs> but I, I wasn't. A, I wasn't an art. I could barely draw. I was. They're horrible drawings. They're little kids' <laughs> drawings. But I thought I was talented uh-huh. because that's. And so you know the cement is hardening in your brain. Yeah. And and so that framework hardened in that direction. That oh, I'm talented. Right. So my whole life. I've thought maybe delusionally that, hey, I'm talented. So when I do a project and like maybe I get a bad review or I write a script that gets rejected, my first thought isn't, oh, I'm not good enough because that's what you know, was programmed into me. My first thought was, oh, they don't get it because I'm overly creative. Yeah. You know, I can't even intellectually, you know, I process that, oh, I didn't quite nail it there in this script or this, I could have done better in this film. But emotionally, and the framework that that uh, was set is one of confidence. You know, I, I've said that about my own life as well. That uh, I think I, I'm conscious of the way I cut myself a lot of slack that I wouldn't necessarily cut other people. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, and I think it's your. I think you're right. I agree with you. It's a very useful um, self preservational mechanism of just you know you you sort of forget the fuck-ups and you just roll past them right and it's something that's given to you when you're very young or it isn't and so many people who are highly successful and i don't consider myself to be highly successful at all but so many people seem to be driven by the opposite of what we're talking about that feeling that you're never good enough that your your parents never really accepted you or approved you and and so people are just, you know, constantly chasing that carrot. That's a, another way to do it. <clears throat> Which, <laughs> pretty, <laughs> I don't know. Pretty unfulfilling yeah. way to do it. I mean, I start out with the proposition: <clears throat> I'm already fulfilled. 
I don't need this. And that's why mm -hmm. I'm five years behind on this fucking book. Because, like, I don't really need the approval or the money or the fame or whatever the hell it is that I'm supposedly getting from this. Well, there's two lessons there, I think. One is if you have kids or are planning to have kids, praise them constantly. Yeah. Tell them how great they are and, and support them and listen. And the other is the creativity thing. I remember reading a book about creativity where they did a study to see how creative people were and they took criminals and scientists and, and maybe uh, authors compared them before and after marriage and the way they would compare the empirical data was how many patents they would file or, or mm -hmm. uh, um, copyrights that's it, the, uh, the numerical gauge of creativity and it would drop once they got married because they would get complacent whereas before they're married they had something to prove yeah. So they'd pull more capers. The criminals would pull more capers, and the scientists would publish more papers. And and, and so you got to find a way to stay hungry and keep keep striving to, to excel. Yeah, but see, then this gets us back to the definition of the developed society, because my feeling is the definition of the developed of the of the advanced society and the advanced intelligence of an individual is when you've attained the state of no longer having anything to prove, right? So whether that comes about through marriage or wisdom or your parents just, you know, filled you with so much love that you feel like you don't really need to do anything. I, I feel, and maybe this is in fact one of those sort of self-aggrandizing illusions, but I feel like that's the state everyone aspires to. You aspire to, but you should never really get there. <laughs> Why not? Because then you will stop creating but, as much. Well, but who's to say that creating is so fucking great? I Here's mean, if you're already on, happy. Creativity. This is my theory on creativity. I learned this while making The Nature of Existence. Uh -huh. I learned, had to learn something from that whole process. People would ask me the main question, like, what is my purpose? Like, they ask, uh-huh. What they're really asking is, how can I be happier in my life? Right. And happiness is a byproduct of having a purpose in life. So your real question is, what is my purpose? So I thought about it, and it occurred to me from a, a sort of uh, uh, universal, a metaphor of the universe. The universe is made up of opposites. There's creation and destruction going on. New stars being created and old ones dying right. constantly. And here, in our society, on our level, there's creation and destruction going on all the time. People behaving creatively and people behaving destructively. When you behave creatively you are happy. When you behave destructively, you're less happy. This is Roger's theory, okay? And you can tear it apart after I'm done, um, when, if you see the flaws. If, if you take someone who's depressed and you give them a, a, a piece of paper and say, here, just for the next 10 minutes, draw something, and they start drawing, in that 10 minutes, they're no longer depressed because they're creating something. They have a purpose in the moment. And they did a study, I remember reading this, where they took a bunch of old people in a nursing home, and 50 of them, they gave a house plant, or they gave, sorry, they gave all of them a house plant, and 50 of them, they said, don't worry about it. It's our responsibility. We'll water it. Mm. The other 50, they said, that plant is your responsibility. Please take care of it. And the 50 that, yeah. with the responsibility live longer. Yeah. Just having the responsibility for a plant. And to me, planting a garden is creativity. You're bringing life. You're, you're creating something. Having a child is creativity. You're creating a new life. Writing a book, doing a dance, uh, writing a poem, creating, building a... Cooking a, dinner. Exactly. A business plan. You know, yeah. it's not just creative arts, you know, we yeah. think of it. It's anything yeah. where you're, you're synthesizing something new. 
even if you're combining old things. Yeah. And so when you're behaving creatively and offering the product of your creativity to your social group, you will be happier than if you're tearing things down. Mm. And and so embrace the creativity, the, the positive that you know force of the energy is certainly. And I agree with that a hundred percent. What I don't agree with is the idea that people who are being creative because they feel they have something to prove because they you know if i make more money i'll fuck hotter women or i'll you know if i live in the bigger house then people will respect me more and that i think is a trap and that's the essential american it'll never trap. be enough it'll never be enough and what you're creating is poison you know you're because you're not doing it out of love and the process uh, itself that should be enough the process of creation and hopefully you get right. paid something so you can pay your bills but it's but but the motivation should not be the pay and i think that's the problem yes. it's so often the motivation is is something that you haven't thought through or that we're you know because our society is built on getting us to run on this wheel you know and ever faster ever faster and never getting anywhere I, you know in america nobody even takes vacation here in in europe august nobody's working in august right here. i embrace that i try to take vacations half the year well that yeah we on our way down here we were talking about that you, so your your thing is go to la work make some money and then get the hell out of town and go do stuff that has nothing to do with work in quotation marks I do but I it's want. still creative yeah I do i want yeah. to do and i want to be creative yeah so i'll bring my camera somewhere i'll go to another country not always sometimes i'll just go on my own just to enjoy going there and, and meeting people just tr- just to go and do something other than i guess work you know and and so although even your work you love yeah it's not work then really if it's something i would do anyway right it's work when i go there just to get paid and and ideally though that even that work is something you enjoy right uh, but it's better if it's your own work your own project well you are living your dream right i mean you you went to la hoping to do the sorts exactly the sorts of things that you're doing yeah i and finally it's... realized it <laughs> yeah. yeah at a pretty young age too that's that's so do you feel i mean do you have the 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 despair of the the mountaineer who gets to the top of the mountain and is like oh now now what no he'll climb another mountain because you always get hungry again uh, it's like okay you've eaten a great turkey dinner you can never you don't have to eat one ever again no tomorrow turkey's an interesting choice. two or three days i think like thanksgiving that's like the big meal when i was a kid that was a big meal yeah, of the year was the yeah. turkey thanksgiving meal yeah. and it was so good it had everything yeah. and you're so full afterward you never want to eat again yeah but then you know the next day you're freaking hungry again you know it you always ever, comes back you ever watch a show called rick and morty no it's a it's an animated uh cartoon uh, a friend of mine's one of the creators of it, Dan Harmon. Yeah, well, a friend of mine. I'm dropping names. I've, I've, you know, spoken to him five times or something. Um, uh, you can call me friend from now on. Uh, I wanna, okay, good. I wanna, uh, good. Object. Well, you remind you remind me of one of the characters actually. Uh, if you ever check it out, it's hilarious. It's, it's extremely subversive. It's about this guy Rick uh, and his grandson Morty. And Rick is this mad scientist with time machines and all this stuff. And Morty sort of goes along with him and, you know, is his sidekick. got to check it out. It's it's Like Ren, Ren and Stimpy level of subversive? Even beyond that, uh-huh. yeah. It's, it's deeply subversive and hilarious. But anyway, um, 
So, wait, we got through two two movies here, I think. <laughs> oh, right. This is why it's Action called picture. Tangentially Speaking. So we had the Yakuza. Yeah, so uh, I, I started with the comedy, then I did an action picture, and the, then I did a documentary about Star Trek fans called Trekkies, which oh, is right. probably what I'm most notorious for. Right, I saw that online, or, or at least the trailer. That one's on Netflix right now. And, oh, okay, and that's DVDs, where I saw it, right. And I, that one was successful enough to prompt a sequel, so there's a Trekkies 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. Both of those are on Netflix. And did you do... Trekkies 2 as uh, well? Yes. All right. And yeah. I think you told me that was like the second highest grossing documentary or Trekkies something? Trekkies 1 got the second highest advance. Oh, advance. We sold it to Paramount. Even better. Uh, we sold it to, to Paramount in 1997. It came out in 1999. They released it in 350 theaters on the same day as Star, Star Wars Episode 1. Oh, wow. And so nobody saw it. Oh, oh! I thought there was like a, a double no. feature. No, well, they were thinking that there'd be lines of people who couldn't get into Star Wars, and so they'd go check out Trekkies, but they're kind of different groups, and, yeah. and it's documentary versus action picture, yeah. but for whatever reason, it you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't break out. Right. But since then, it's uh, achieved a cult status and a life of its own, and it's been sold into every territory around the world. And I'll tell you a secret for the budding filmmakers out there. I didn't realize this at the time, but when we made the film, Denise Crosby is my partner in the film. She was an actress. She was Tasha Yar on Star Trek The Next Generation, and she's the, the host of Trekkies. She insisted that we get a theatrical guarantee from Paramount. She didn't trust them because all these Star Trek actors had trust issues with Paramount for years because they would get these royalty statements when they wouldn't be getting any, any money for like action figures and, and you sold a million action figures and there's no profit on an action figure so that just is what framed her mindset she didn't trust them she said I want on paper a theatrical guarantee and they said they wouldn't do it and they wouldn't do it and she said no sale we're going to sell it to Universal and that's how we got it bid up to a million and a quarter was the advance because Universal also wanted the documentary so they finally caved and gave us a theatrical guarantee, which was the first time in the history of Paramount Pictures they ever gave anybody a theatrical guarantee. What does that mean? That they will put it in movie theaters. Uh. They will guarantee you they will put your movie in movie theaters. They don't give Tom Cruise a theatrical guarantee. His $20 million is his guarantee that they're going to try to recoup. So they put it in movie theaters, and it essentially bombed. I mean, I don't know, made a few hundred thousand dollars. But because it was released theatrically it became a part of their package of theatrical movies that they sold to other countries around the world. So our little documentary got a little slice of these big theatrical packages that they sold to other countries, which it wouldn't have done if it had not been put in movie theaters. Mm. So that's why it's, wow. it's, it's well into profit and, and has, has grossed you know, about $6 million, $7 million, something like that for wow. a film that cost us $150,000 to make. So even though it ostensibly wasn't successful financially, it's hugely successful. In, yeah, yeah. In the ancillary sales, so that you led us to doing know. a Trekkies two, and in between Trekkies one and Trekkies two, I did a, a documentary called Six Days in Roswell, where I went to Roswell, mm. New Mexico, with Rich Cronfeld, who was in Trekkies. He's the guy in the Captain Pike chair, who drives down the street with just his head sticking out. <laughs> Captain Pike was in the one of the pilots of the first original Star Trek and oh, he was paralyzed. Uh, Christopher Pike. Right. Yeah, right. I remember. That was a creepy one. Right. That, that was very creepy. So the guy yeah. who built a Captain Pike chair in Trekkies, I spun him off and followed him to Roswell where he was going down to try to get abducted during this celebration they have there every July 4th. 
Okay, abduction. Uh, this just popped into my head. Do you know uh, Cheryl Crow? The singer? The yeah. singer. Mm-hmm. Okay, she released a record. Uh, I can't remember the name of the record, but there's a song on the record called Maybe, Maybe Angels. And it's about how she's, the the character that is singing is, I'm going down to Roswell, Uh, I can't remember the lyrics right now, but it's about how she wants to get um, taken away by aliens. Uh Uh, I think it's called Maybe Angels, yeah. Um, And there's there's all this stuff about how she knew Elvis and the reincarnation of Elvis or Elvis is still alive. But anyway, the central point of the song is that she is, her bags are packed, she's ready to go, she's going to get taken away by aliens, right? There's another song on the same album called Heaven's Gate. The Hale-Bob Comet. This record came out six months before the Hale-Bob Comet sect killed themselves because they thought they were going to get taken away by aliens. I don't know what the hell is going on with that. That blows my mind, that she's got reference on the same record to getting taken away by aliens and the phrase Heaven's Gate. The song's not about the sect. She doesn't know anything about the sect, apparently, or Uh didn't, right? Because this was before it Mm -hmm. hit the news. And the reason you know about this, I know why you know about it, aside from the fact that it was in the news, is because... Michelle Nichols. Uhuru's, yeah, (laughs) nephew or something, right? Yeah, it was nephew, cousin, brother. I don't remember, but she's related to somebody who was in that cult and yeah, killed himself. Yeah, yeah. Incredible. First interracial kiss on television. Right. Spock, or Kirk, and, and Uhura. And that may actually have something to do with why I'm married to a, a non-white woman. Because I grew up watching that show, and I thought Uhura was the hottest, hottest of the hot. I mean, yeah. my God. Don't forget the green woman. Well, I have never forgotten the green woman. Yes, when Kirk got it on with the green woman, I was like, damn, Kirk. I must kill you because I love you. She's about to stab him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, okay, let's get through this before we go. Uh, were there, were movie, there others? Uh, what else? Suckers, Suckers, which is a drama about car salesmen. <laughs> really? That's great. How do you, did you just like, a friend of Get mine sold cars. No, I had no? a buddy who sold cars, and he used to tell me stories about what they did to the customers, and I said, we should write a movie about this. And we wrote a script and found an investor and made the film for half a million dollars. It's about a new car dealership, mm. and it reveals all the secrets behind their sales techniques oh, man. within this drama. And you cannot, I challenge you, anyone listening, if you want to do an experiment, I challenge you to find a car salesman who has not seen this movie, because they all now watch it. Oh. As as like inspiration, it's like like uh, the uh, gangsters watching The Godfather, and oh, that's how they do it. Right. right. I went to a car dealership a couple of years ago. I was directing a commercial because we had to look at the car that we were going to be featuring, and I told the director of photography, "Just ask the guy if he's seen Suckers." He goes, "Oh God, what, why? Just see what happens." Hey, have you seen Suckers? The guy's, oh, yes, they made us all watch it in that room right there. Oh, really? it's like everyone's it's forced to watch Suckers. Like at a sales conference or something? Yeah, yeah. So it has a, this, this cult following among car salesmen. If you get yourself a copy of Suckers, you'll learn all the secrets. Have you bought a car since then? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Do you, do you tell the salesman, like, dude, don't even try it? Oh, they know. They've seen it. Yeah, they want me to sign an autograph. Do you get a better deal? 
you must. No, no they don't. No? You tr you, well, I'd, I'd try to. You know, <laughs> it, that's as simple as knowing their invoice, what they pay for it, and then giving them a profit, yeah. as opposed to, they call it dealing from the top or dealing from the bottom. If, if you start with the retail price and beg them to come down, that's dealing from the top. You don't want to be in that's a weak position. You want to start with the dealer's price and have them beg you to come up yeah. from that, and right. then you get a better price. I've only bought one car in my life. Uh, I never owned, I'm like one of the few American men who has not owned a car until I was 50. When I came to the U.S. a few years ago, I bought this car. And I was like, I was not going to get ripped off. So I researched it. I knew exactly what, I, what the price was. Uh, used Honda Element. I ended up buying it in Santa, San Diego somewhere. I drove all around L.A. looking, you know, figuring stuff out. It's used. Um, and, I mean, I hardballed those guys. And, you know, I had, they gave me this young salesman. And he was like, oh, it's my first sale, please. Oh, you know, the whole thing. And I, and I, had, I took um, I had an envelope with $20,000 cash in it because I figured I'd get it for a little under 20 grand and I'd like put the cash on the table like you know not knowing that they prefer not to have cash they prefer to have you finance they'll the make car. money on the financing so I I was outdated my whole negotiating strategy um you know and I like drove away and they're like that's our final offer I said oh the hell with it I drove away and they're calling me on my cell phone 10 minutes later and drive back and uh, the whole thing yeah they so, will they will not stop negotiating until you physically leave right so keep that in mind and even then they will they'll st they called right. me on the road right so I turned around went back so I got the I got a really good price right then well, at least I think it was a really good price and then they uh uh send me in to talk to this woman who does the final paperwork or whatever. And that's where they got me. Yeah, they, your guard, you, you lower your guard. Really? That, I you think, think it's, it's over. Done. Right? <laughs> exactly. It's not over. It's not over. And she's hot and friendly. Yes. And, you know, and so we're flirting and chatting. And and then she's like, well, are you going to get the, the service guarantee, whatever right. the thing? Lojack, the undercoating, whatever yeah, they can throw whatever. And then and, and just as we're talking about it, this guy walks by the office and she says, hey, Jack, come in here. The, what, what does this thing cover? I forget what this covers exactly. And he's like, well, you better, you should ask what it doesn't cover. It covers everything. It's and it wasn't until like a day later I realized that whole thing. They do that every fucking time. Yeah. And they got me for a thousand bucks, you know, for some bullshit I didn't need at all. You got to look up the cost of that item, all the items, including the warranty or yeah. low jack, and know what they're paying yeah. for those things too. I didn't need a fucking warranty. But they're smart. I mean, they're not dumb. It's like you think you're going to play tennis against Serena Williams and you're going to beat her. On, no. She practices every day. Well, that's it. Like lying to cops. You think you're going to, yeah. like, outsmart cops because you've watched, you know, NYPD Blue or whatever the fuck it was? Sorry, dude. You know, they're pros. You Car know? salesmen are pros. They yeah. do it every day, you yeah. know? And so they've got dealer holdbacks, and they've got rebates that you're not aware of. They've got incentives that they get paid from the manufacturer that you're not aware of. Yeah. Unless you can find those things out. Yeah, yeah. So, suckers. All right. So you remind me of this friend of mine, Richard. Uh, he's a Richard Schweid. I've had him on the podcast. He's a writer. But his books are like, um, he's got a book about cockroaches. He's got a book about eels, uh, classic cars in Cuba, uh, chili peppers, 
uh, octopuses is his last one. Uh, Life after death. It's just like all over the place. You, you know, get obsessed with the topic. I know he the just feeling. gets interested. Yeah. And he's like, "Fuck, I'll write a book about this." You yeah. know, I'm curious about it. That's so what I do with documentaries. Do so I get films. obsessed with a topic. I got right. obsessed with existentialism, and made a movie about it called uh, "About Why Do We Exist?" Called "The Nature of Existence," and asked people to explain it to me. Why are we here? What's the point? Yeah. And watching people try to answer. Including very famous people. Yeah. Uh, Richard Dawkins is on there, and you've got all these nuclear physicists. Or... They're the best. Watching people try to answer the unanswerable question is hilarious. And it, was, it took a physicist to correct me. The question is not why do we exist. It's how did we come to exist. Why presupposes a reason. Mm. There's no reason. Yeah. You're looking for, we look for a reason. It, yeah. You know, that doesn't mean there is one because we will feel better because we can find one. Well, that's, it's like we make... We make everything into a story because that's how our minds work. But that doesn't mean that existence is stories, is made up of stories, right? It's, yeah. So yeah. I answered the question, why am I here? I'm here to be creative. That's mm. what it ultimately came down to. At the end of the movie, I don't give the answer, though, because I, don't, I feel like preaching turns people off. It's yeah. better if you can ask the questions, provide the information, and then let people arrive at a destination yeah. of their own choosing. It's, it's a better way to teach an idea. You, in your one of your interviews with Richard Dawkins, he says something. He says, "Oh my God!" Oh, or, or like God knows. God, God or, knows it, and he catches himself. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "Oh, even me." I'm, I'm surprised he didn't make you take it out. <laughs> he was hilarious because he was in a hurry to go to the bank to sign some papers, so I had to fire my questions off really fast, oh. which got him all worked up and energetic. And he's already energetic to start with. He's he was a soundbite machine. Mm. Everything well, he said was usable. talk about a pro, right? Yeah, yeah, he's used to that kind of thing. It was great to meet him and, and to have that interaction. Yeah, and that moment is one of my favorite moments when he he just he goes on the wrong direction and catches himself. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, it is very good. So uh, you get to L.A. You're you're what in your twenties. 22, I guess, right after college. 22. You drive to LA. You get this job. Uh, how? You knew I sent someone, out you met a someone? thousand resumes. A thousand. I'm Mr. Uh, a thorough, you know, and, and, I, and I've got this idea that I'm talented in my head, right? Uh-huh. Maybe delusionally. So I figure somebody's going to hire. They're gonna, of course, we're going to say yes to you, but I don't know who to contact. So I get a book that lists every production company in Los Angeles, and there's about a thousand of them. I didn't realize that most of them are just some guy in a house or Paramount Pictures. Like, <laughs> dear Paramount, dear, hire dear me. Dear Mr. Paramount. Right into the trash. <laughs> but that shotgun approach uh. did allow it to arrive at a few places that made sense, and I got about a one out of about 100 response rate. I got nine phone calls. That led to three interviews, two job offers, and I took one. <laughs> and I ended up working there for five years. It's like the salmon's approach to yeah. reproduction, you know? I'll just spawn the hell out of this thing. Right. Yeah, nice. Even, but imagine if I'd only sent out 500. Yeah. I might not have gotten that job. Yeah. I would have spent all my money at film school and gone a different path, and who knows? But that's this is the way it happened. The company I worked for was called Rollins, Joffe, Mora, and Bresner. And they managed comedians and produced movies, and they had Woody Allen and Billy Crystal and Martin Short, uh, David Letterman, and Robin Williams were their big five <clears throat> at the time. The, I was in competition with Jerry Lewis's son. They'd also met with him. Larry Bresner was one of the partners, and he, he, he said he, that between the two, we thought I would probably work harder yeah. than Jerry Lewis's son. Wow. So they hired me. 
Wow. Because my letter arrived the day their runner put in his notice. It was just timing. It's all about timing. Yeah. That's why the shotgun pro approach combined with timing and maybe a little luck and a good yeah. interview. And they said, okay, you can, we're going to hire you to be our, our runner, our slave. So I did that. I was their runner for two years. And while doing that, the secretaries would be at call in six sometimes. And so I'm there. Okay, Roger, you got to sit in and, and answer phones for, for me and, and make my phone calls. So I did that a few times. And I did that for Buddy Mora, one of the other partners. And then he fired his assistant and hired me to be his assistant because I was, I guess, so much more efficient than she was. Mm. I didn't try to get her fired or anything. I just did my best job, the best work I could. Then I was Buddy's assistant for two years. Then they promoted me to talent scout. And it was my job to go and hang out at the comedy clubs and look for talent. Oh, really? Wow. And meanwhile, I was working on making my first short film, which I, I finally did on evenings and weekends. Uh, it was a, just a horror comedy short that I did a lot of film festivals and won some awards. And... When that was done, I similarly with my resume, I sent that out, hundreds of VHS tapes to any, any place and anyone who would listen, and I finally got a job offer to direct an episode of a TV show called Monsters, which was a low-budget syndicated TV show. And my episode starred uh, Kevin Nealon, Julie Brown, and David Spade. Uh, and that led to the next job, which led to the next thing and the next thing, and I've been working ever since. Fantastic. Do you remember anybody from the comedy clubs? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember, I see Jay Leno do stand, he was just a stand-up, or Gary Shandling, or um, uh, all those, uh, Rob Schneider and, and David Spade, that's how I knew those guys, Adam Sandler. Uh, they were all just starting out. going so yeah. there's no fat there's no spaces there's no ums and ahs there, it, it's the same with the show we i spend so much time cutting out the you knows and the ums and finding the most efficiently stated version of that line mm. to get through it faster mm. it, and and to increase the density of creativity or the humor or the knowledge the information whatever it is to to keep trying to increase the density within your your frame whether it's a 30 sec, 30 minute series or a 90-minute documentary. Yeah. There's never enough. You've got more. You can never cram it all in that yeah. you want You want to get in there. Right. And then go back and watch it again if it's too fast for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Or pause it pause and think it. about well, it. Well, that's the thing now. I mean, as a creator, uh, you know, you're... Are you thinking... Has, has the end user's experience changed the way you create things because you know people can pause? Sure. And their attention spans, obviously, are getting shorter. Right. Kids are used to three-minute bites now on YouTube yeah. and Vimeo or what have you. That's just how they consume data. And, you, and you're thinking about that while you're creating. You're not just churning out the same thing you would have churned out 20 years ago. It's speeding up, yeah. but it's still always been a rule of thumb. No scene in a movie is longer than three minutes. 
almost ever. Sometimes people will violate that. But usually there's a reason. If a scene is longer than three minutes, it's because somebody new joined the scene. It's called a French scene, like mm. the new element enters. Yeah. And then it, so it's a new dynamic. But typically three minutes is all an audience will give a, a particular scene in a movie until they need a new location or a change or something to change. Really? That's interesting. Huh. Three-minute bites. And so it makes sense that YouTube videos are roughly, you know, the three-minute bite. Right. Yeah, so that's sort of like a natural, almost a biological uh, time frame that's built into us somehow. There's some degree of ADD built into all of us. Yeah. Some have it more than others. Have you heard of Dunbar's number? Yes, the 150 yeah, that we can yeah. keep track of right. emotionally yeah. in, our, in our group of connections. Yeah, so I wonder if that's a sort of similar kind of biological uh, epiphenomena of, of the size of our brains The or limits. Something. I'm sure we have limits. We have limits in everything, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, there's very few people with infinite capacity. Yeah. There's a few savants out there. Yeah, Cassie and I just watched Rain Man last night. She's she's a psychiatrist. She'd never seen Rain Man. We were um, listening to uh, an interview with Oliver Sacks on, uh, or no, it wasn't Oliver Sacks. It was Steve Silberman who just wrote a, a, a book about autism, and he mentioned how Rain Man had changed the social perception of what autism was. So many people had never even heard of it, and then suddenly there was this diagnostic explosion because now people knew what it was, and they were taking their kids in and all that. And uh, she mentioned she'd never seen Rain Man, so we watched that last night. I feel like Rain Man with a box of matchsticks when I'm editing. It comes naturally to me to take pieces and put them together mm. in the best possible uh, combination mm. to make the funniest, den- the, 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 the best density of comedy. Yeah, it comes naturally to you. Uh, it, it comes fairly easy, I yeah. guess. Yeah. yeah, I mean, naturally, is, it's not something that we we were good at on the African savanna, right? <laughs> Editing video, <laughs> but for for whatever reason, yeah. there's something in there. It's that some module that that works well. Some things just click. Yeah, I, you know, I, you could probably tell me better than anyone if there's any way I can make money doing this. But I have, uh, I'm unable to not notice when the continuity is wrong like when you know they're having a conversation and the guy's watch says 10 to 12 and then you know three seconds later it's 2 30 i can't not notice those things now of course there may be ones i'm missing but i know that when i'm in a group of people i'm the only one that notices 99 out of 100 of them mm-hmm. and everyone else just gets irritated because i keep stopping going, look look you know, the, the earring was different in this one and they I can't not notice that. And I feel like there must be some way I can make a living in Hollywood just sitting there and going, wait, look, that that changed. That's the script supervisor, the continuity, or script continuity. She does both, usually, or he. That's their job. Really? Is to prevent those things from happening. And they're good ones and bad ones. You'd be a good one. I'd be, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, who knows? It's, it's one of those things you can't... Uh, until you're there, is there, uh, should I send out emails? If you want to try it as a career, why not? We all try new careers constantly. Hey, time for a change. book writing thing doesn't work out, yeah. switch careers. Well, I mean, it's so much different to make a living doing something that you can't help doing. Like, what a great gig that is, you know? You just happen to notice. Well, it's a very thankless job. You oh. won't feel all that fulfilled because constantly you're being told don't worry no one will notice because yeah. we don't have time we, there are more yeah. important things right. and the, o- the only real 
the best solution to that is our better stories. Because if you're caught up in the story, you, you that's when you start missing all those things. Mm. If it's not engaging, then you start noticing those things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. See better movies. See better movies. I, I, it happens even in great movies, great TV shows. It, it's like I say, it's not, I can be really engaged. In fact, I find it irritating because I am engaged and then I'm taken out of it by noticing that, you know, whatever anomaly it is. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Listen, I could talk with you all day, but I know you've got things to do. You've got a, a wedding of, of fairies to go to. Yeah. and Yeah. Got to see what's going on, what that's like. A bunch yeah. of polyamorous fairies <laughs> hanging out. In It's not in Ashland. This is in Portland, right? No. the There's a bar in Ashland called Oberon's Tavern, uh-huh. which if you've never been to and you're passing through Ashland, you must check out. They have topless Tuesdays, for instance. There you go. People are, they body paint. And the, the, there's an ordinance there. You can't just get naked for no reason. So they did find a way around it by saying it's art so they body paint on people they take their shirts off men and women and they, they body paint mm. on their breasts and top the top half of their bodies and that way it's not violating the ordinance against nudity right but anyway there's many more reasons to go there they it's a great old-time renaissance bar the owner of the bar oberon is getting married and i'm going to his wedding and i'm going to interview him for my marriage documentary and when do you think that'll be out any idea? About the same time as your next book. Next summer? Yeah. Yeah, good. We can do a double billing somewhere. I would love it. A double signing. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Roger. Anytime. Is there like a website or anything? You're not hawking anything here, but is there... Uh... Keep track of me at my name, rogernygard.com. There will be something there. The Nature of Existence. I'm sorry, the uh, the Truth About Marriage.com. That'll be oh, up okay. at some point. Okay, good. Maybe by the time, you know, that people are paying attention. Uh, I'll have something there. Yeah, cool. It's coming. All right, (laughs) coming soon. Thanks, Roger. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, You don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, He's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. There's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you 
to Carpe Fucking Diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground.